Good morning. It is good to see you here. I'd love to add my welcome to your presence with us this morning. We're very thankful for you and this opportunity of ours to assemble together and study uh, and worship our Heavenly Father. Uh, this is week two, and uh, <clears throat> I'm going to have to be honest, the two services are messing with me a little bit. Uh, it's not the, not the eldest fault. They certainly told me. There would be two services, and when I heard that, and they said, well, you're going to preach the same sermon twice, I'm like, okay, well, certainly we could do that. Uh, I thought in myself, well, I'm just going to give it the, the very best I got on both times. I'll do it the same way. And I don't know what it is about 8 o'clock, but the energy level seems to be a slightly lower. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's not appropriate to yell at people at 8 o'clock in the morning. Maybe that's it. I don't know. You seem much more candidates for yelling, though, at this hour. I'm going to do my best, though, because I don't want to deprive the folks that come at 8. Uh, I will tell you, though, last week my wife, uh, after the first sermon, said, eh. <laughs> what? what was wrong with you? After the second one, she said, now, see, there you go, right? That, that's... So we're going to do the very best we can, uh, both of those sessions. Our title this morning is What God Wants for You. We'll get to Micah 6 in just a moment. But the sermon comes out of the thought that there are people struggling to have a relationship with God, and, and that's due to a couple of reasons. There are people who come to the Lord, they obey the gospel, and they begin to, to walk and live a new life, and then in their minds, it just becomes too difficult. God becomes too difficult. His commands, His decrees, His desires, His, his expectations just become too lofty, and they cannot measure up. And what they're working in their mind is, what God wants from me is so difficult that I can't do it. And so sometimes these people, under that weight, they give up. Other people who ultimately end in the same place, they just never really start with God. They see other people and they think to themselves, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. I'm not perfect. I can't be that good. And there's no way I'm going to be able to live that life. And therefore, they won't even try. I never come to God because of what God wants from me is so difficult that I just won't be able to make it. Now, I want to suggest to you that both of those positions are wrong. Uh, and maybe another time we'll spend an entire sermon on why they're wrong. But at the very least, to dispel those two thoughts, let me offer these things. Number one, God's commands are not grievous. 1 John 5 and verse number 3, God is not a difficult God. He's not. He's not, and his commands are not too difficult for you. Jesus said, secondly, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And that can be seen, especially when you compare it to the heavy burden of sin and self and Satan. That burden is heavy, not the Lord's. And this is actually the thought in Micah chapter 6. The children of Israel are struggling in their minds. God is asking too much, and we can't please him. We don't have time to go into verse 6 and verse 7 of Micah 6, but if we did, they would be explaining why God can't be pleased. And then God says this in verse 8. He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? 
but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's actually not our sermon this morning. Our sermon is not what God wants from us. It's what God wants for us. And it's possible that if we understood how much God wants us to succeed, how much God has done and is doing for us, then maybe what he wants from us wouldn't seem so difficult and laborious. This morning, we want to discuss four things that God wants for you. Four things. Everything that God wants will simply benefit your life. It will bless your life, and ultimately, it will brighten and enrich your life. Someone has said, you can tell how much somebody wants for you by what they're willing to do to bring it to pass. And you can see in God's actions and what he has done that he really wants these things for us. Number one, God wants belief for you. God wants you to believe. There are several reasons for that. We'll get into the things that he has done to evoke that. But let me just offer this. God knows that if you don't believe, then you can't please him. Hebrews 11 and 6, the Bible says, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You simply must believe. God knows that, and so he wants that for you. Belief also is unreasonable. Uh, when you look at the evidence that God has given and provided, it, it is simply against the facts of our reality to disbelieve in God. There is the law of cause and effect, the law of design, the law of biogenesis, and ultimately the objective absolute moral, moral standards that God has given us all evidence God. These realities, in fact, are so clear that God says in Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It would be foolish to say it, according to the psalmist, to even say it in your heart, let alone outside of your mind and actually verbalize it. It would indeed be foolish given the amount that God has gone through to evoke your belief. If you have your Bibles, join me in Psalm 19 and notice some of the things that God has done, has provided to evoke your belief. He wants that for you. Psalm 19 breaks down into at least three sections. The first section is about creation. God has given us creation. The second section is revelation. And the third section is reconciliation. God has given these things so that you and I would believe. Notice verse number one. The Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. The psalmist in this section, God is going to personify creation. He's going to give it life, intelligence, a voice, as if it could speak to you and were speaking to you, as if it could communicate to you. Now imagine that, that God made the creation and in, infused within it the ability to communicate with his creation, with who he made to be here. Notice verse number two. The Bible says, day unto day utter speech, night unto night shows wisdom. How often does creation talk to us? The psalmist says, every day and every night. 
How far reaching is the conversation? Notice verse number three and verse number four. The Bible says there is no speech nor language where their words or their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. Think about that for just a moment. All over the planet, everyone in every country, in every culture, no matter the language, can hear creation's communication. Not only can they hear it, they can understand it. It keeps shouting over and over again, there is a God and he is glorious. Sometimes people suggest, well, there are people in distant lands that may never hear the Bible. Before God gave his word, he gave the creation. And that creation is intended to communicate, and it does, with everyone and everywhere. God gave us that so that we would believe. But notice the second half of verse 4 through verse number 6. In the middle of that creation, he says, In them he has placed a tent for the sun which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, rejoicing like a strong man to run a race. And he says, its rising is from one end of the earth to the other. There is nothing hidden from his heat. It is difficult no matter where you are on this planet to miss the sun. It is difficult not to see it. It is difficult not to appreciate it. And what the psalmist says is, right there in the middle, God put this sun. In fact, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, where Jesus is teaching men to ultimately be like their Father, which is in heaven. King James will say, be perfect, complete, mature. Learn to love your enemies the way God loves his. Learn to do good no matter what men do to you. And it's within that section that it says he lets his son rise on the just and the unjust. I'd love it if you pay attention to the phrase his son. The son belongs to God. And God put the son so you and I would believe. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night shows wisdom. God wants you to believe. That brings us to the second part of the psalm, and that is not simply creation, because creation inherently has limitations. Now, while the creation does do precisely what God designed it to do, it declares the glory of God. I liken it to a neon light. It just keeps pointing every day and night to God's glory, but it's limited. That limitation is solved by the next thing that God gave. Notice verse number seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. What's the second thing God gave? Revelation. What creation can't do is convert your soul. You need revelation for that. You need to know what's in God's mind, and God, he did not withhold that from you. He revealed his mind to us through his law so that he could convert our souls. We needed that in order to believe. You see, believing that there is a God doesn't tell you about that God. 
believing that he is and even that he's glorious doesn't inform you of what you need to do to please him. And so revelation does that, and that revelation is perfect. It's perfect to convert your soul. In fact, just notice the, the wonderful things it says about this, this law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, and then it will tell you that it does something. It's perfectly whole and complete to convert the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, that is, they stand firm and they're faithful to do what? Make wise the simple. The precepts or the judgments of the Lord are right or straight, upright. They're correct, and in them they rejoice the heart. It's pure, it's sincere, and it enlightens the eyes. The benefits continue. Notice verse number 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are right altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, more than fine gold. Sweeter than honey and the drippies of the honeycomb. Moreover, he says, by them your servant, in keeping them he is warned, and great is his reward. That's the nature of God's Word. It is the singular blessing, according to Paul. In Romans chapter 3, the Jews would ask, what advantage then had the Jews? Or, or what's the point, Paul, they would ask. Paul, if the Gentiles have sinned, chapter 1, and if we are just like them, chapter 2 of Romans, then what advantage did we have? Paul said, chiefly every way, but unto you were committed the oracles of God. The Word of God is held up as a singular blessing for its benefits, for what it does for our souls. Deuteronomy 10.13 says the law was given for their good. That's the nature of God's Word. What did He do for you? What does He want? He wants you to believe He's given you creation. He's given you revelation. And he has given you reconciliation. Notice the psalmist pleading from verses 12 to 14. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I will be acquitted from great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth the meditation of my heart. Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Friends, there's really very little more important than faith in Scripture. Very little more important than faith in your relationship with God. In fact, we might say it's ground zero. It is the genesis. Nothing's really more important. Without that, you can't begin or end or walk with God. And God wants you to have faith. And so he's given you creation. He's given you revelation. He's given you reconciliation because without faith, it's impossible to please him. How do you get it? Romans 10, 17 says faith comes by hearing. According to John, faith is the victory. 1 John 5 and verse number 4. What does God want for you? God wants you to believe. Secondly, God wants salvation for you. He wants that for you. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 4, the Apostle Paul says of God, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter says it just the opposite. Actually, 2 Peter 3 and verse number 9, Peter says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Simply put, God wants everybody saved. Everybody includes you. It is a lie from the devil that God doesn't love you. That's a lie. It's a lie that God doesn't want you to come to him. That is an absolute lie. It is a lie that God won't forgive you. Somebody somewhere might be thinking that. I want to believe. I want to come, but God doesn't want me. That's not true. No, a thousand times no. It's a lie to believe that you have done so much bad that you have no shot of having a relationship with God and doing good. That's just not true. The truth is God wants you to be saved. So much so that God has done a great many things to make it possible. With regards to your specific salvation, God has given. And this is, again, just going to be true as you work our way. I think one day we will get into a series of salvation, and we'll talk about these things in much more detail. But, but let me just say this. With God and salvation, His Word will always reveal it. And what it will reveal is God always sends a person in salvation. He always sends someone Who will go for us? That's God's question. And there's always someone sent. The person, as it relates to your salvation, is Jesus Christ. Nothing short than the very Son of God, nothing short of the divine nature in a body. Jesus came to save. In fact, John 3.16 refers to Jesus as just that, given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent not his son to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. It is the case that God wants you saved. That's absolutely what he wants for you. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You know, if God didn't want you saved, he'd have just kept the Lord in heaven. But he didn't. He wants you saved, and so God sent the Lord, and Jesus came. And Jesus says, I'm the way. Follow me. Come to me, and I'll take you home to the Father. He sent a person, but then secondly, he sent a plan. It is always the case that the person has a plan. Nobody ever comes on their own. Not even our Lord came on his own, though he came freely and willingly. God sent him. But there's a plan. The plan as it relates to our Lord is the gospel. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. And Jesus said to those who would be his disciples, you make sure you go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Why preach the gospel to every creature? Because that's God's power to save Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Friends, while you don't read your name specifically there, you are the whosoever. That's you he's talking to. He wants you saved And God always provides a place. 
Salvation is about a person. It always is. Salvation is about a plan. It must be followed. And salvation is about a place. It's always located somewhere. One of the things about salvation is very clear is you can always draw a line of demarcation. You can always know which side you're on. You remember Moses' words, who is on the Lord's side? There's always sides. There's always a place to be. If you were in the days of Noah, that place would be in the ark. If you were in, the, in Jericho in Rahab's day, that place would be in her house. If you are living after the cross of our Lord, that place is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says, Therefore I do all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And what God provides is how to get into that place. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. That's how we get there. There's always a person, there's always a plan, and there's always a place. And God provided that for you. Because God wants you to be saved. Remember Paul's words. Who will have all men to be saved come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants you saved. But then thirdly, God wants holiness for you. God wants you to live a holy life. The Bible says in Psalm, or Proverbs 14 and verse 34, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Sometimes you hear, and, and I've heard it frequently, and I'm certainly not saying anything bad about the people. It just seems to be a general sentiment, and that is you hear people say Christianity is hard. And the truth of the matter is that's not true. It's not true. In fact, you, maybe you can quote the rest of this verse with me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is, and my burden is, hard to get hard out of easy and light. <laughs> Somehow we've done it. I don't know how. But there is something that's hard, and God doesn't want it for you. In Proverbs chapter Proverbs chapter 13 and verse number 15, the Bible says, Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of the transgressor is hard. There is a difficult life to live here, but it's a life of sin. It's a life that's hard. If you have your Bible, look at Galatians chapter 5. This is one of the reasons the Apostle Paul is contrasting these things. The way these false teachers are in Galatia trying to turn the brethren back. And, and, and as you read this through the New Testament, it's not simply that they're trying to turn them back to the law of Moses in its proper form, although that would still be wrong because Christ has come and the law has been fulfilled and taken out of the way. So it would be wrong to try to go back to the law even if you did that properly, but they're not even trying to do that. They're trying to take them back so that they can bind their traditions and their thoughts and exert influence and power over them way beyond God's Word. And that's what the Lord's constant problem was with the Pharisees. It's not that they held to the law of God and they were committed to it. It's that they would set it aside so often and do their traditions. They were so quick 
to disregard God's law. So when you read this in Galatians chapter 5 and other books like Galatians and Romans and other books where Paul is talking about these Judaizers and they're coming into the church and trying to take, they're not simply trying to take them back to the law. They're trying to take them back to them so that again, they can have and exert power and force over them and their corruption of that law is so often in play. The results of that life, living that life and following their traditions, Galatians chapter 5, begin reading with me at verse number 19. Now, King James would probably say, now the works of the flesh, some readers will say the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are these. Note the list. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, uh, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and such like, or things like these, of which I've told you before and now I tell you again that they which commit such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When you and I are talking about a hard life, that's it. That is a hard life to live. Living a life of sin, living a life of practicing these things that are contrary to the God of heaven, that's the hard part. Trying to figure out to whom did you lie. Trying to figure out who you took advantage of and who knows what you've done in secret and in the dark. Trying to make sure you are ahead of every contingency and every prop. That's a hard life. In fact, those of us who once lived that way came to Jesus to get out of it. That's what's hard. When we talk about Christianity is hard, look at what follows. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness. Y'all stop me when I get to hard. Faithfulness, self-control, and peace. That's the good part. What God wants for you is to leave a life of sin and come to Him and enjoy the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 16, Peter says that, God wants you to give up your former life and be like him. Peter says that he didn't want them to walk anymore in their former conversations. Once they lived in their lust, Peter says, no, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy. For it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Jesus would say it this way, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. It is so much more fulfilling trying to live a holy and righteous life. So much more abundant in its nature, being at peace with all men, being able to know I didn't do anybody wrong intentionally. I'm not hiding anything. I'm not lying to anybody. I'm not trying to trick or manipulate. I'm not stealing from anybody. I'm not wronging anybody. Oh, nobody's perfect. That's not what I mean. But a life committed to the practice of holiness is the best life anybody can live. Man, you get to sleep at night real easy. I mean, you want to be kept up at night, keep doing people wrong. 
You want to be kept up that night. Just keep, keep sinning and living lives that somebody will find out and it'll hurt you and them and everybody else involved. Now, that'll keep you up. But to do right the best you can to live faithfully, man, you go to, you're just at peace all the time. People will probably ask you at your job, why are you so happy all the time? You should take the time to tell them, God, God's way is so good, and my Father is so good. I am just thrilled to try to live a life that's consistent with His character and His will. In fact, God has given things to help you accomplish it. One, He's given you Christ's example. God didn't stay in heaven and say, now do it this way and figure it out. No, God came and took on flesh and said, let me model it for you. And was anybody done more wrong than Jesus? Was anybody assailed and assaulted more than Jesus? And yet, the Bible will say of Jesus, he went about doing good. The Bible will say of Jesus, when he was threatened, he threatened not. What are we to do? God has given us an example to learn from and strive to emulate. God provided Jesus so we would live the abundant and holy life. Secondly, he's given us his word. Let me offer one more reason to read the Bible. Help us live holy lives. Why put this in your heart? The psalmist says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It is so hard. Not, not that you can't do it because if you're strong enough and your will is strong enough, Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful. It, it's wicked. It's, it's deceitful. You could trick yourself and you could deceive yourself. But if you have God's word in your heart, it's harder and harder to ignore the sounds of it when you are contemplating doing something wrong. God's word just keeps talking to you. You just keep knowing I shouldn't do that. You just keep knowing I shouldn't say that. Why? It's in there. It's designed to help. But then thirdly, he's given you his forgiveness. 1 John 1 and verse number 7, John says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, King James will say cleanseth. Others will say cleanses. The point is he keeps on doing it. The blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses those who walk in the light. And I'll probably say this about 5,000 more times. Another sermon, another day. Walking in the light, the Bible doesn't teach that if you walk in the light and you— I probably shouldn't even get down that path because I don't have time. Chapter 2 and verse number 1. Oh, I didn't tell you. I'll do that too. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I will have a thought in my head. It will start to come out. I'll realize that's going to take too long, and then I'll stop. Uh, sorry, because you'll probably be at least that much interested at the first thought. But I do know you don't want to be here till five. See, I'm always thinking of you <laughs> when these things occur. <laughs> the blood of Jesus Christ is, is, is a great blessing, and the cleansing is not something we try to take advantage of. It's something we rejoice in. Chapter 2 and verse 1, John says, These things I'm writing unto you, so you sin not. The blood of Jesus Christ is a blessing, and God has given us that. But he's also given us his children to help bear one another's burden. My point in all of this, friends, is this. You're not too far gone. That's not true. God has not given up on you. It doesn't matter what you've done. You are not doomed to live a life of immorality. You hear people say sometimes, once you're this, you're always that. That's not true. You're not confined to your past. 
You're not incapable of becoming a new person. You can, not the person sitting next to you, not the religious people you know. No, God wants you to live a holy life, and you can. Saul of Tarsus changed, 1 Timothy 1, 13 to 17, and he says, God held me up as a model and an example that if I can, you can too. The Corinthian brethren changed, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And while we don't go around cataloging sins and saying this one is worse than that, listen, everything that's included in the scriptures with regards to sin, God will cleanse. Doesn't matter what it is. You haven't, you haven't committed a sin that the blood of Jesus can't cleanse and overcome. God wants you to live a holy, healthy, happy, abundant life, and you can. Thirdly, God wants you in heaven. God wants you in heaven. You can tell how much somebody wants them. Did I say thirdly? I meant fourthly. <laughs> this would be a good time to smile. You know, sometimes you get gifts. He said third, he meant four. This is the final point. The point is this, God wants you in heaven. I don't know what could be better than that. You can tell how much somebody wants something for you by what they're willing to do to bring it to pass and just what is it that God is willing to do to get you to heaven? He's willing to give you Christ. I referenced it this morning. I don't know. I, I heard it attributed to B.J. Clark, and when I heard it, it just kind of stuck with me. He was talking about people going to hell, and he, he, he said in some sense that, that, the, that the Jesus Christ and his death on the cross is God's way of saying, I don't want that for you. And in order to do it, you'd have to step over my son's dead body. You'd have to reject this offering if you wanted to go to hell. God doesn't want you in hell. God wants you in heaven. And nothing short of the blood of Jesus was given so that you could come and be with God. Christ didn't just die. He was buried and he rose. And it is the rising that is the power. He's declared to be the son of God by the resurrection. He didn't just rise, though. He ascended back in Daniel 7, 13 and 14 and Acts 1, 9 through 11. He was brought to the ancient of days and he was crowned king, coronated where he sits at the right hand of God, making intercession for you. God wants you in heaven, and he's given you his church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God to help, to encourage, to instruct and correct, to pray for and to edify, to rejoice with and to sorrow with, there were one passage to sum up what God has done and what God has given. I think a good one would be Romans 8 and verse 32, where the Apostle Paul said, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things to enjoy? There are some people. They believe the burdens of God, the restrictions of God, the laws of God, all that God, it was just too heavy a burden to bear. I can't do it. There's other people who they sit among God's people week after week. Everywhere I've ever preached and everywhere I've been, there are perpetual visitors close, nearby, 
but they never become Christians. I've even sat with some and they've told me, I can't do it. I can't be perfect. They believe that what God wants from them is too heavy a burden. I wish they knew what God wanted for them. God wants you to believe in him. And so he's given you creation and revelation and reconciliation. God wants you to be saved. And so he's given a person and a plan and a place. God wants you to live a holy life. And so he's given you the Christ as an example and his word to hide in your heart and his church to help you and build you up and edify you. And God ultimately, friends, wants you in heaven. The question is not so much what does God want for you. The question is what do you want for yourself? Do you want to believe? Because you can. Do you want to be saved? You can do that too. Do you want to live a holy life? Because you can. And do you want to go to heaven? It'll probably be sad to say, but it's true. God may want you a lot more than you want him. Do you want God? Because God wants you. Never render obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, as a song I heard growing up said, at least in one part, I ain't too proud to beg. No, we beg you. We beg you to come to Jesus. Literally, we do. You can't make a better decision. And you can't make a worse one if you don't. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, John 8, 24. Change your heart, change your mind. The Bible calls it repentance, Luke 13, 3. Confess the name of Jesus. It will bring you unto salvation, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And then you need to be immersed in water, buried with him in baptism, so that you can rise and walk in newness of life. I can guarantee you this. God wants that for you. But if you're his child, you know there's all these accounts in Scripture of people leaving God. I can tell you this. God wants you to come back. That great parable there in Luke 15 about a father who lost a son. Boy, aren't we glad when the son comes home. Heaven will rejoice if you will come back to God. And friends, if we can help you in any way, if we can assist you, we beg you, come to God this morning as we stand and as we sing. Amen.